Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us today on World Footprints Radio. It's a great day to travel and leave positive footprints. We're your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we're going to take you places where no one else does. If you're joining us for the first time, thank you and welcome to our world of socially conscious and responsible travel. Ian? Today's show will showcase two dynamic Academy Award-nominated directors who are using their gift of filmmaking to share the cultures of our world and raise awareness about important social issues. Recently, Tanya had an opportunity to sit down with director Greg McGilvery, the man who pioneered IMAX filmmaking, historian Robert Lacey, best known for his controversial book, The Kingdom, and Saudi film student Hamza Jamjoon. The trio was in Washington for the U.S. premiere of Arabia 3D. This film represents the first full-feature production ever shot entirely in Saudi Arabia. We'll also welcome back director-producer Robert Bilheimer, who will talk about his life as a filmmaker and student of the theater, as well as his decision to focus on socially conscious issues like AIDS, human rights, and trafficking. We love hearing from you, and we invite you to contact us about anything at comments at worldfootprints.com. Also, there's a Contact Us page on our website, worldfootprints.com, where you can connect with us, and if you want to follow us in real time, please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. There's links to our social networks and our newsletters on our website at worldfootprints.com. We're also very excited about a new feature we've added to the website that will allow you to offset your carbon footprint whilst investing in a United Nations approved community project. And you can find our carbon offset feature in the travel portal on our website at worldfootprints.com. Saudi Arabia is a land that precious few will ever visit, a place cloaked in myth, mystery, and misinformation. Now at last, audiences around the world will have a chance to set out on an intimate, visually stunning three-dimensional journey into the heart of the history-laden Arabian Peninsula, to cross sand dunes in a camel caravan, to dive into the reefs of the shipwreck-laced Red Sea, to excavate the towering tombs of the lost city, to witness the moving spiritual journey of the Hajj, and most of all, to meet the Arabians who are forging new paths in a contemporary moment of historic transformation. All of this, the mystique of a hidden culture, the legends of a storied history, and the intrigue of a diverse modern society grappling with rapid change come to the fore in McGillivray Freeman's latest giant screen adventure in thought-provoking Arabia 3D. I had the pleasure of sitting down with director Greg McGillivray to talk about his adventure of filming entirely in Saudi Arabia and to seek answers to the many questions that this film presents about life in this land of perpetual paradoxes. Greg, you have directed a number of uh, large features. I know you're the pioneer of the IMAX uh, process, which I I love. Um, But what specifically drew you to this film? and and, and Saudi Arabia as a subject matter? Well, a number of uh, Arab-American business people came to me and they wanted to uh, inform the world about their culture. And because very few films or television shows have been made about the Middle East or Arabia, 
um, I thought it would be intriguing and um, and uh, and, it, and it would build a, a kind of a bridge of understanding between our culture in the West and theirs in the Mideast. And so I thought, well, this is a great challenge. It'll go out with educational information, teacher's guides, books, and uh, uh, Internet activities um, in order to educate people um, so that we can feel more comfortable about mm -hmm. um, Arabs and Muslims and understand that culture better, understand the religion better, and, uh, and feel... Um, just more comfortable with with um, you know that that area, mm -hmm. and so you know you through if everyone were able to travel there, there'd be no problem because once you go there, you understand okay these people are just like we are back at home. But before you go there, you have all these misconceptions that um, haven't really been denied by anyone in the press principally because there's not that much written about the Middle East except those things that are negative. Mm -hmm. And so you end up getting kind of a slanted point of view. Um, really, the people are wonderful just as they are everywhere on the world, and they want the same things for their children that we want for our kids here. Mm -hmm. You know, as I mentioned, you, you've uh, directed a number of um, large films, large featured films, but you seem to gravitate towards a lot of the authentic, experiential type uh, issues, whether it be the environment or, or culture. Is that how you see your role as a filmmaker? To a, to a degree. Um, it's one of my kind of intellectual interests is, is to try to understand people and places of the world. But I think um, the most joy I get is to take people places that they're not able to go on their own, whether it be Arabia or the top of Mount Everest or to the bottom of the ocean. Um, these are places that people should see um, and maybe they're not able to do it on their own. Mm -hmm. And so IMAX is the next th best thing to being there. Um, we can even take people out into space and give them the true sensation of being out looking back at our planet. And, mm -hmm seeing it with a new perspective and it's it's that learning that you get from an IMAX theater film that in, encourages and, and interests and stokes me it, it keeps me uh, trying to make a better film with each one that I do now I know with Arabia 3D this film was actually the first film that was um, filmed in its entirety in the country of Saudi Arabia. What were some of the, the challenges, uh, what were some of the surprises that you encountered during the course of making this? Well, it turned out to be a lot harder than shooting anywhere I've ever been. Um, even harder than India or Russia to film in. Um, or even Red China when I was there uh, 30 years ago. Um, partly because they don't have a film industry and so there are not any easy ways to get permitting uh, permits done for filming in various places. Mm. They just haven't issued these permits, and so they don't know what to do. Um, I think now that we've done it for the first time, it's going to be easier on the second filmmaker and the third filmmaker and the fourth filmmaker, but we were really the first to do um, most of the things that we were asking to do. And so there was 
uh, a lot of time spent having cups of tea in offices in Riyadh and Jidda and to try to get um, permits to put our cameras in various places. And we ended up getting all the permits. Uh, it's not that they were trying to keep things secret from us. It's just that they didn't have the protocol set up for mm. filming. Mm. Well, I, I can tell you from my own perspective, having seen this film today, it was very, very powerful. And I hope um, that people who see this film will, um, will leave with a, 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 a greater thirst to understand this, this country um, and its people. But what did you have goals uh, for when you made this film, set out to make this film, or, or what do you hope that people will take away after seeing? Well, I think the main thing is is to try to make people to feel more comfortable with the society, the culture, um, and to have that curiosity that you're talking about, um, to go to the internet, to go to the books. Uh, to go to other videotapes and learn more about the region. Um, we just are able to scratch the surface of what it is to be Arab and what it is to be Muslim in the film, but we give, we're kind of like opening a book to the first ten pages. You kind of hope that you're engaging people in a way that will keep them going to the, to the final page. Mm. And it uh, in fact, we even use the book as a metaphor in the film because we are opening people's eyes to a new part of the world, um, a part that's been uh, in, historically kind of closed off for all kinds of weather and geographical reasons mm -hmm. to many people in the West, um, and historically closed off as well. But today it's opening up and uh, things are looking brighter. And now that uh, democracy is actually um, seeing the light of day in many of the countries, um, I think people will be much more curious about uh, Saudi Arabia and all of the countries on the Arabian Peninsula. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's it's a interesting time for the region, interesting time for the religion, um, and it's great to have made this movie that is coming out right now when things are emerging and changing. Indeed. Now, was there a moment during the course of, of, of this film or even after um, that was really transformative for, for you? Was there kind of those one of those moments that just really took your breath away? I, I think the most amazing thing, and I was kind of prepared for it, but then I was still shocked by it, was the beauty and the um, almost hypnotic aspect of the Hajj where mm -hmm. for three days uh, three million people get together and peacefully celebrate their faith and um, try to become more connected to their faith it's almost like a renewal of their their vows and you can see it in their faces um, they are so serene and um, and kind of not hypnotic, but they are um, kind of soul searching in a way that's really positive. And it, it, I suppose it's it's like our Easter service, um, where you f you feel a sense of renewal, mm -hmm. but it 
is uh, um, so important to the Muslims' way of life and what they want to do in their life. And each, each, each Muslim tries to get to Mecca if they can afford it during their lifetime. Um, and it, it, when you can see it, I mean, it's just complete joy and complete serenity and um, uh, confidence and uh, a, a feeling of oneness with their God. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's a, it's a very moving and stirring moment. Mm-hmm. And I was really uh, moved by that, um, you know, seeing it from afar, but, but nevertheless seeing it and talking to people about it. Um, and trying to experience it. Um, I'm not Muslim, so I, I, I can't experience that exact thing. Mm-hmm. But um, they, they told me about it and what they felt, what, what, what feelings went through their body and, and how they felt uh, in tune with others around them. Mm-hmm. That, that was actually the, the... I mean, there were many moments in the film that just captured me, but... That um, the, the the motion, the the fluidity of, of just people, it was very very powerful. So I, I thank you for sharing that <laughs> with everybody, and, uh, and and certainly thank you for uh, for for being with us today. Now, what is next for you? I know in your industry, you guys are always <laughs> moving. There's always something going on. So what's next? Yeah, we we try to put a film out every year, and the next one we have is a movie about the Arctic Ocean and the life of a polar bear mother and her two cubs. Mm. And so it's it's a life of hardship and a life of dedication and determination and uh, heroism. Wow. Uh, and it's it's all about this one mother polar bear and her two seven-month-old cubs that are cuter than puppy dogs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't wait to see that. And just one quick question. Out of all the places you've traveled, and obviously you travel all over the world, is there a place that really just touches you when you, when you, when you visit? Well, two places. I, I love where I live in Laguna Beach because I love the surfing and I love the people and, and the, uh, the, the, the temperature. Um, but I also love the tropics, and so mm-hmm. going to a place like Bora Bora, um, the island of Bora Bora in, in French Polynesia, is super special to me. And I've been there three times, I think now, and each time has been magical. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. It's been magical having you on our <laughs> show today. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, you're so welcome. <laughs> After the break, Tanya talks to historian and Arabia 3D's consultant Robert Lacey, author of The Kingdom, a controversial book that's still banned in Saudi Arabia. It's incredibly moving to be in a country where five times a day everything stops for prayer. Whether you agree with the particular beliefs or not, the, the strength of them has to command your respect. Um, and I was originally drawn, of course, in the 1970s to Saudi Arabia because of curiosity about how they would employ their oil power. Next on World Footprints Radio. Hi, I'm Callie Schultz from the great city of New Orleans, and you're listening to World Footprints Radio. We can't wait to see you in New Orleans very soon. World Footprints Radio is an award-winning broadcast and leader in socially conscious travel. Hosts Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick bring you entertaining and informative interviews with well-known celebrities, newsmakers, authors and industry professionals. From environmental leaders like Bobby Kennedy Jr. and David Rockefeller Jr. 
to conservationists like actress Stephanie Powers and director Ken Burns. Tune in to hear travel journalism at its best. Visit unique places from around the world and stop by the worldfootprints.com website for comprehensive travel information including special daily travel deals. Hey, this is Jay down in New Orleans and you're listening to the good folks at World Footprints. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Robert Lacey is a renowned author, British historian, and Saudi Arabian resident who became one of the film's cultural advisors. Despite his book, The Kingdom, being banned in Saudi Arabia, Robert continues to live there because he enjoys being surrounded by history in motion. Robert sought to strike a balance in the storytelling as well as the spiritual life of Arabia and the everyday world people live in. Robert, you are an historian and an acclaimed author. What drew you as an author and historian into researching these uh, really authentic experiential periods in, in various histories? Well, I have a particular interest in the British monarchy. Um, I love my queen. Um, more to the point, I think that traditional structures like monarchies have more of a role to play in the modern world than people realize. And um, so I've written some books about the queen. I, I, um, I shall be commenting, uh, am commenting on, on the royal wedding this, this year. Um, you know, who would have thought 60 years ago that um, the British monarchy would be stronger than ever mm. and people would be celebrating it? And that is what drew me to Saudi Arabia originally at the end of the 1970s. Um, there in Saudi Arabia, you have a monarchy in spades. You have 6,000, 7,000 princes and princesses. But more to the point, you have a great sense of tradition, mm. um, the importance of the family inside the tribal structures, um, the importance of religion. Uh, it's incredibly moving to be in a country where five times a day everything stops for prayer. Whether you agree with the particular beliefs or not, the, the strength of them has to command your respect. Mm -hmm. um, and I was originally drawn, of course, in the 1970s to Saudi Arabia because of curiosity about how they would employ their oil power that they were developing then. Saudi Arabia controls a fifth of the world's oil, 20%, more than any other single country. And the remarkable thing is that um, 30 years later, it's used it actually very responsibly. It's the only country at the moment that's got spare capacity to uh, pump extra oil when there's trouble and uh, disorder. And so all these different aspects, above all, a people and a society dedicated to preserving the best of their traditions. That's what drew me. And what drew you specifically to this film project, uh, Arabia 3D? Well, this is the first um, movie ever made entirely in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and it's part of the opening up that has happened under the reign of King Abdullah since 9-11. Um, I was drawn back to Saudi Arabia after 9-11. I wrote a book 30 years ago called The Kingdom um, and I never thought I'd go back to Saudi Arabia then of course after 9-11 you hear these words um, fatwa, jihad um, al-Qaeda, bin Laden and suddenly everything seemed to revolve around this country, Saudi Arabia that I knew a lot about so I went back and um, I wrote a book called Inside the Kingdom but my involvement with this film is to do with the fact that 
obviously a book can communicate with so many people, but um, a, a, a movie, and a, particularly a 3D IMAX movie in full color, can convey so much more to, um, to children um, and to anybody who, who's got um, a visual imagination. I mean, the end of this film, when you hear the millions, literally millions of pilgrims in Mecca and you see them saying their prayers, sighing, it's like the sea, Mm. the waves of the sea coming and going. It's very, very powerful, Mm -hmm. very powerful. Now, I I just want to circle back to your book, Inside the Kingdom, Mm. which we know was was banned, Mm. uh, and you've just released a second edition, I believe, Mm. um, which is not necessarily being distributed, but it's Mm. available Mm. to those. When you you were researching uh, your initial book, you moved your family, um, and you lived in uh, Jeddah on the Red Sea for 18 months. What was that experience like for you, and what was it like for your family? Well, my little daughter, who was then six or seven, um, learned to swim in the Red Sea, made lots of Saudi friends. My wife would go behind the veil, as it were. We would go into family homes, and she would go into the female quarters, where the black veils with which we're familiar are just hung on the door, and um, women are dressed in, in, in ordinary clothes. Mm. Um, something I've discovered in Saudi Arabia is that um, most young women under, the, under their um, um, veils wear um, jeans and sneakers. Um, uh-huh. it's, um, the, um, for me, I've, I wanted to live um, as a... Well, I, couldn't, I knew I could never live as a Saudi would live, but I felt... Um, it is only really by living in a society that you learn what it's like. Yes. Um, I mean, for example, you learn that um, although um, women are still banned from driving in Saudi Arabia, that's going to change because men are fed up with it. They're fed up with the fact they have to get up, and, uh, husbands have to get up <laughs> in the morning, take their children to school before they go to work, um, get back early from work to pick up their children from school, their wife wants to go shopping, they have to drive her to go shopping. I mean, it's absolutely mad. It's clearly not <laughs> going to last long. And so, but the practic if, if you just visit the country as a journalist, you're just going to talk to politicians who will strike attitudes one way or another. Mm-hmm. If you live there with Saudi friends, you discover the practicalities of life. Sure. And that's what I try and get across in my book. And, and I think the film does that as well. Now, when you, when you lived there, how were your perceptions of the country and the people changed uh, during your, your, experiencing, your experience living there? Well, I did not become a Muslim while I lived in Saudi Arabia. Um, I remain Christian, but I developed enormous uh, belief and respect for the Muslim faith. I mean, when you, when you live in Saudi Arabia as a Christian, uh, you, you drive towards Mecca, for example, down the road from Jeddah which is the port of, of an airport of, of Mecca, and you come to this checkpoint. And if you're not Muslim, you can't go beyond it. And then you have to go round Mecca on something called the Christian bypass. Mm. Um, uh, in some ways, you're excluded from the culture. But in other ways, Saudis are very warm and welcoming, bring you into, your, into their homes. And I, I learned the, the importance of family values to this culture and... As a whole, um, I mean, since I first went to Saudi Arabia um, 30 years ago, in many ways the country has got more conservative. Mm-hmm. Um, when I first went there in 79, 80, you see women water skiing. 
Now you never see women wearing bathing costumes. And I, and I know some of those women who used to water ski, and now, of course, they're older, like me, um, but, but they believe that the West um, has become too immodest. Um, they believe that um, uh, their femininity has to be preserved with modesty. Mm. And uh, I respect that view. Uh, it's, it's, it's a society which, to some degree, is saying no to some of the aspects of the modern world. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, I mean, actually, I think that's a worldwide trend. I remember talking about this in the United States, saying, you know, I would never have thought when I went to Saudi Arabia in the 70s that um, in 30 years' time it would be more conservative and more religious. And someone from the audience in America said, well, would you have thought in the 1960s that America would be so conservative and religious in 30 years' time? Um, and I think it's a common reaction to it's people's fears of a changing world um, and uh, people turn back to tradition when they're worried about the changes and I think people are right to be worried about the changes um, and there's no harm, I believe, in going back to tradition obviously tempered by modern reality. Uh, what is next for you actually? Um, well, I'm now working with a, um, a, a family in, in Jeddah to um, help them develop a family history unit so that they can uh, uh, analyze and recount their history. And so um, uh, it's the truth in the past. I think there are many truths that lie in the past, and I try and bring them out and make them relevant to the present day. Well, Robert, I, I thank you for joining us today on World Footprints and certainly look forward to... Uh, Future, uh, future work from you. Thank you, I've enjoyed it. Up next, Tanya enjoyed a conversation with Saudi film student Hamza Jamjoon, who started off assisting with the film but became an accidental principal character. Once they, uh, they met me and, and they realized that uh, I should be in front of the camera instead of behind the camera, so they offered me the leading role in this film and I didn't know what that meant. Mm -hmm. like, yeah, you're going to be in the film. I'm like, oh, I guess I'm going to be in the film just like as a side character or something <laughs> but I ended up being the main uh, guide that takes people through Saudi Arabia and the story became about me traveling back home and um, on this journey to rediscover my heritage and my culture. Next on World Footprints Radio. Hi this is Johnny from New Orleans. Welcome World Footprints and come visit us in New Orleans sometimes at French Quarter Festivals. Consider NationwideMall.com, America's online shopping mall for your shopping needs. There's a huge selection of stores to shop, and more stores are added weekly. Recent surveys show that more and more shoppers are looking in stores and then buying online. Shop NationwideMall.com from the comfort of your living room. Have an online store? NationwideMall.com is always looking to add more stores to complement the needs of our shoppers. That's NationwideMall.com, America's online shopping mall. Hi, I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and we're the host of World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio and Travel Radio have joined forces to bring you our award-winning brand of socially conscious travel radio. On World Footprints Radio, you'll meet celebrities committed to travel philanthropy and the protection of our planet. And we'll introduce you to the people and places who will give you a taste of culture and heritage from their point of view. Travel the planet with every episode of World Footprints Radio right here on Travel Radio. And when you travel, remember to leave positive footprints one step at a time. 
Hi, I'm Patricia Elsey from Mother's Restaurant, and I'm sitting here with the famous World Footprints radio people, Tanya and Ian, <laughs> and they love our cooking. She got a shrimp creole, he got a breakfast special with scrambled eggs with cheese, and Ian got the scrambled breakfast with sausage and hot sausage, and they're really enjoying the food. And I love them, and I hope they come back again. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Hamza Jamjoon is a passionate young Saudi Arabian film student at Chicago's DePaul University who returned to his home country in Arabia 3D to take an eye-opening journey through its past and present. Hamza, this is a, a, a phenomenal film. How did you end up as part of uh, one of the central characters? How did you get involved? Well, it's a funny story. Um, initially, I was approached to be uh, part of the productions. They wanted me to be uh, an assistant cameraman. So about four years ago, I was approached by McGillivray Freeman Films. I was studying at DePaul University. Um, so I knew the craft of cinema, and I was... I'm bilingual and I'm from Saudi Arabia, so they thought it'd be a great asset to their production in Saudi Arabia. But once they uh, they met me and, and they realized that uh, I should be in front of the camera instead of behind the camera, so they offered me the leading role in this film, and I didn't know what that meant. Mm-hmm. They're like, "Yeah, you're gonna be in the film." I'm like, oh, I guess I'm gonna be in the film, just like as a, a side character or something. <laughs> but I ended up being the main. Uh, guide that takes people through Saudi Arabia and the story became about me traveling back home and uh, on this journey to rediscover my heritage and my culture. Mm, and, and how was that journey for you? It was it was incredible. I, uh, I learned a lot of new things about my culture that I didn't know about. There are so many fun things that uh, we got to see. We're traveling all over Saudi from tiny villages to bigger cities and we were diving in the Red Sea and we lived in the desert, and I'm a city boy, so I'm not well exposed to the Bedouins and the, the people who live in the desert and the desert life. So it was really entertaining and enlightening to to see um, how most of our culture comes from the desert. The way we eat, the, the way we dress, everything comes back from the desert. So it was an amazing experience for me to see the, the roots of my culture, and, and mm-hmm. you can just see it in the desert. People live still in... In, in tents and live with camels and mm-hmm. they're very hospitable they're very generous because they had to survive and part of surviving in the desert is being generous and being uh, very hospitable to people so I got to see these attributes and, and why we Arabians are that way mm-hmm. Do you think you would have experienced that but for your your time in the US at DePaul University or but for this film would you have learned these new things about your your culture otherwise? I'm not sure because Saudi Arabia is mostly split into two kind of people the, the, live, the, the people who live in the cities, city people and the Bedouins who live in the desert so myself and my family were city people so we're not really exposed to the, the, the desert life so I'm not sure if I was going to be exposed to such an amazing journey if I just didn't make this movie. Mm-hmm. 
You know, it's said sometimes that, you know, when you leave your home, sometimes you can't go back or you go back a very, very different person and, it, and, it, and it, there's a period of adjustment. Did you experience that at home with your, with your family after spending so many years in the U.S.? Well, I mean, I constantly travel back and forth to Saudi, so there's not a single year that passes by without me spending at least two months in Saudi. And the thing I see is that Saudi is changing so fast. Every time I go and visit, the the amount of change and the progress is incredible. It might be actually too fast for some people. It's changing so fast and so rapid. So a lot of people fear the... Um, the consequences of changing so fast that, that maybe the, the younger generation might lose their culture or their identity because we're moving so fast ahead, mm-hmm. so fast ahead. Well, speaking of, of, of culture, what is being uh, done to help preserve your cultural uh, heritage and, and, and your history? I see this film mm-hmm. as, as one way of doing that, but, but at home, what is being done to make sure these treasures are preserved? Well, the government is helping out um, preserving a lot of uh, certain locations that are uh, important in our, from our past. And, and also the public is now eager and hungry for stories from our past and tales from our lovely culture. So uh, with films like this one, uh, we basically show the world and we also show Saudis and people in the Middle East the beauty of our country and the beauty of our lovely culture. For example, like when I was growing up, I, you know, on TV we only saw American movies and we only saw English cartoons. So mm-hmm. there wasn't much for us to relate as kids to any of these cartoons. They're in English. You know, we saw a bunch of you know Mickey Mouse and whatnot, like a bunch of mice running around on screen. It just didn't make any sense to us, and we couldn't relate. It's a different language. It's a different culture. So I felt the need to to do something about that, and I want my kids to watch cartoons that are inspired by characters from our past and I want to show the world who we are mm-hmm. as a culture. Did you go through any personal transformation during the course of making this film? Uh, you know, when you discovered new things about your country or was, was there just a kind of aha moment? Well, you definitely, there was, I think there has been multiple aha moments while filming this movie because as, as a young man uh, growing up in Saudi you didn't know exactly the reason or or why your family did certain things or why in this culture you do certain things. So you just took it for granted and it's okay. Like that's what countries do or this is what different cultures do. They just like, you know, you grow up in a in a certain culture that this is says this is okay, this is not okay. But when you get to go outside, like for me it was coming here to the US and then coming back to your home country and then seeing it with fresh eyes you realize the beauty of your own culture and the beauty of your own religion and why you do certain things and how it's important and why uh, like it's it's something that made us survive in the desert and it's something that brought our families together and made us really uh, close to to everyone around us and, and it, it was amazing like that realization is like Oh my God, this is why every Friday we go to my grandma's house. Mm. Like, no exception. All of us, the 40 cousins, we go up, we show up into my grandma's house, we eat dinner together. Like, to me as a kid, I was pointless. I'm like, oh my God, it's Friday, we gotta go again. <laughs> but then you realize, like, 
it's important family is number one and mm -hmm. the, you don't just meet with your parents and your brothers and sisters no you meet with the extended family 40 of you sitting in one gigantic table or many tables but you're in the same house and you're just talking and sharing this communal mm -hmm. feeling with each other so that was that was incredible like it was amazing and then uh, also discovering the amount of things we have from the past like we were diving in the red sea and uh, i never knew that there are a lot of shipwrecks in, in in the red sea and then you discover that well saudi or that arabian peninsula was a region where people came in and did a lot of trade from china from india so there were boats down uh that uh that we or scuba diving through from the Chinese dynasty, uh, I don't know which one, but uh, and also some uh, some ships from India that had spices on them, some ships from the Roman Empire. So it's like, oh my God, like this region has been here for a long time and, and trade has been such a big thing in our culture. And, and, and it's wonderful to see that. Mm. I, I want to circle back to, to something we were just talking about, that, you know, the importance of family and your weekly dinners at your grandmother's house. Um, as I mentioned, you've been in the U.S. for the last seven years. How have you kind of tried to reconcile or adjust to the absence of uh, those traditions in your family here? Well, it's, I mean, it's very difficult. Family is such a, such a big thing for me and I think every Arabian. And uh, it was really shocking for me uh, coming here, especially like interacting with young people in college like everyone is really individualistic they just want to do it on their own they want to they don't want to talk to their parents they don't want to have any kind of support financial support it's like i'm on my own i'm gonna do great and for me that was very strange and i'm like i love my family i don't i want to be with them and uh, i don't care if you think i'm being uh, immature if, if I want to still be with my family and be, still be living in my parents' house. It's, it's, I like that. It's okay. Like it's, for us, it's such an important thing. Like you stick around even if you get married, even if you have kids. Like you're always trying to live closer to your parents' house because you want to serve them. You want to make sure that they're okay, they're taken care of. So here I had no one. I, uh, well, in the beginning I had my sisters. They were both here studying in Chicago. But then they left and I had no one, so I had to befriend a lot of people and almost shock them by how nice I am and how uh, friendly I am and how like I treat them like a family. Like I share personal stuff, I invite them for dinners. And, and then now my close circle of friends, they all love that and we, we're all... Uh, you know, enjoying this environment where we're always meeting over weekends. We have dinner at this guy's house, this dinner at this mm -hmm. woman's house, and it's it's fun. Like mm -hmm. that's you got to create a community that's similar to back home to feel comfortable. Sure, sure. But you've probably, I would imagine, had to fight some misperceptions. Uh, so tell tell me a little bit about that and, and, and how you really overcame. Well, the, I mean, there are a lot of misperceptions about Arabia, about the Middle East, and about Islam in specific. So, coming here, I was young, and 9-11 um, happened while I was here. It was horrible. A lot of people were angry, a lot of people were confused, but thankfully I was in Chicago, so most people were uh, looking for answers more than accusing you and fighting with you, but there has been a lot of incidences where people were angry, and, and uh, you know, it's a concern that that most Americans have and they need to know more so I had to sit down and 
I had to become a, almost like a politician. I had to have to learn more about my culture. I had to learn more about Islam. I had to because I'm, I'm being I'm being asked a lot of questions. So I mm-hmm. have to be prepared. I have to know my religion. I have to know my culture. And and it was wonderful because it was shocking. I, all of a sudden, like I wanted to be more religious. I wanted to be more Arabian, like because these people are asking me. So I look up all this stuff in my past or or the the history of Islam and the history of of Arabia and I'm like man we are great like I am so proud of myself and I'm so proud of my country and I'm so proud of my religion this is great and, and it was amazing like I grew to love my my country and my heritage more and more just by being in the US and just by having people ask me more more and more questions so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that was something that was amazing what do you hope people will take away after seeing this film well uh one of our problems in Arabia is that we don't share a lot of our stories with other people. We're very proud of being Arabian. Um, a lot of us speak Arabic. We have a huge population of, uh, of us in the Middle East. So mm. we don't really translate our stories. We don't really translate um, anything basically about us and share it with the rest of the world. So hopefully with this film, we can give the audiences a chance to, to see and experience Arabia. And the key thing to keep in mind is that the Arabian culture is very private, unlike the American culture where you, what you see in public is very similar to what you see in, 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 in private. In Arabia, the, the public life is extremely, extremely different than the, uh, the public life. The private life is extremely different than the, the public life. So what you see outside is very different than what you see in the privacy of your homes, the, the, the parties, the weddings, the schools and whatnot. So if you show up as a filmmaker in Saudi Arabia without that knowledge, the only thing that you're probably going to see is men in white robes and women in black robes walking around the street. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we did our research and, and we wanted the audiences to experience this uh, you know, private look of the culture. We're very intimate people, so we don't just uh, allow anyone to, to see us. So what you do is you got to befriend Arabians, you got to you know come into their society, and then you'll see the minute details of this culture and, and realize how beautiful it is and how similar it is to the American culture in that we share the same problems, we share the same goals and needs, we want better futures, better jobs, and, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And is that is something that you want after you graduate from DePaul and, and, uh, and return home? I'm assuming you're, re- you're going to return home. Is that something you want, uh, you want to set as a goal through filmmaking? Yeah, well, one of my goals is to go back home to Saudi Arabia and help establish a film industry there and tell stories that are from our past and from our culture and share it with the rest of the world and I, I think I'm going to focus on making movies in English mm-hmm. because English is widely spoken everywhere and this film did super well overseas it did well in China, it did well in, in England and I, I think people are hungry to learn more about the Arabian culture and, and I think it's about time Like Hollywood has misrepresented us for Certainly. centuries like, it's always the Arabian guy who's a terrorist and is trying to blow something up. So I think it's about time for me to uh, do something positive and, and show the world who we are. Mm, well, perhaps the film industry will be the next part of the next uh, golden, yeah, golden I think, age, yeah? I think the, the f- I, I truly believe in media. I mean, media is key in both establishing your culture as a society and also establishing your culture so that 
people overseas can see who you are. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you learn about a foreign country? You got to read their books and, and, and watch their their arts and, and listen to their music. I mean, that's part of learning a culture. And I think, sadly, we don't share our music and our, our stories with, with other cultures. So I think it's it'll be fun. In the next few years, I'm hoping to... Uh, make a lot of movies that share with the world what we are and what we do. Well, I look forward to future stories, and I thank you for sharing your story and your family uh, with us, and uh, look forward for for good things to come. I hope so. Thank you so much for joining us on World Footprints. When we return, we'll welcome back Academy Award-nominated director Robert Bilheimer, who is using his gift of filmmaking to raise awareness about the important social issues of our day. And the social awareness, you put those two things together, and eventually, you know, you find a guy who sort of does this and that, and and when he gets to be around 40 years old, puts it all together and says, well, you know, I'm going to be a documentary filmmaker. (laughs) Next on World Footprints Radio. Hi, this is Paul Harris from uh, Southampton, England. We're once again here in New Orleans. I think it's my 35th or 40th time, and it's always a pleasure to come back. We always bring our, our musicians with us. And it's a great pleasure to uh, meet uh, our friends from World Footprints and uh, wish you all the success with your show and uh, looking forward to seeing you again sometime. Hi, I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. A few years ago, we decided to leave our respective legal practices to live a more purposeful travel life and help others leave positive footprints. World Footprints was born and was quickly recognized for its award-winning journalism. We've covered events from the Olympics to a Titanic expedition, and we've discussed conservation, environmental, and public diplomacy initiatives. Join us for award-winning radio and visit our website, worldfootprints.com, for daily travel deals and comprehensive travel information. I'm Lord Richard, and I'm from Northern Ireland, and I have a record company which produces New Orleans records, jazz records from the 1960s and early 70s, Uh, from New Orleans, and uh, I just love World Footprints. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. Bob Bilheimer is best known for his focus on subjects of social, cultural, and humanitarian concerns. Bob's nonprofit film production company, Worldwide Documentaries, and the film production staff believe there is no better use of the powerful and compelling medium of film than to put it at the service of the human family. Here's more with Bob Bilheimer. Bob, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, your background is so rich and you've had so many great uh, experiences from you know being a uh, in, uh, in the theater which is uh, besides travel and my husband is one of my first loves and uh, and um, I think you were in the army as a uh, chaplain assistant is that correct yeah, <laughs> what uh, what 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 has drawn you to these types of socially conscious um, subjects for your films? What has drawn you to this area of filmmaking? I think so. You know, I think for all of us, you're a little bit made up of, you know, sort of the DNA that you get from your parents and, and how you're raised and where you're raised and, and, and lessons you're taught or, you know, have been you know, just early on, and um, 
I, um, uh, my father um, was um, a theologian and one of the founders of the ecumenical movement in the Protestant Church. So I, I, I grew up in Geneva, Switzerland, um, which was the headquarters of the World Council of Churches. So I grew up. And my mother was a teacher at the, at the time, and as well, as always has been, was a teacher. And so, you know, if you look right there at the kind of sort of setting that, was, that I grew up in, I, I grew up in a, in a climate of, of, you know, discussion around these issues. And um, I went to the International School in Geneva, and, it, you, know, in the, you know, back in the uh, 60s and, and during the early days, for instance, of the anti-apartheid movement, and my father was very much involved in that as a church leader. And, you know, you can kind of see, without going into a long and to your listeners, I'm sure quite boring, you know, um, life history of Bob Billheimer that, 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 you know, the path that I took is mm-hmm. kind of sort of, you know, included, a, a, you know, an inclination to, um, you know, I, have, I suppose you might say certain um, gifts or skills towards uh, on the so-called creative and artistic side um, that, again, I think I probably inherited from members of my mother's side of the family, and then this social awareness, you put those two things together, and eventually, you know, you find a guy who sort of does this and that, and and when he gets to be around 40 years old, puts it all together and says, well, you know, I'm going to be a documentary filmmaker. <laughs> well done. <laughs> That's kind of what happened to me, you know? <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I love how you're using... Uh, how you've tapped into your heart for other people and uh, and developed this this gift and you know you did a film that really resonates with Ian and I called Cry of Reason yeah um, and uh, it's based in in South Africa it uh, um, showcases a an Afrikaner who really. Uh, taps into into his humanity uh in in you know the the cliff note version of your film but it resonates with us because and uh and and we've just the people that we've met and other Afrikaners that we've interviewed uh even those who are part of the uh um the army um who walked away to to do something positive things for black africans and uh and others you know it just uh it 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 just brings to life um the belief in our humanity so i tell us a little bit about this film because i just gave it a cliff note version look kind of reason uh, well the story of of um there is no dad um who is one of the great figures in south african history um as any any South African will tell you, uh, um, is, is an astonishing story because uh, Bears um, was um, a member of the Afrikaner um, elite, uh, and uh, his his father was one of the the great leaders in the Anglo-Boer War. And Bears, um, at the time that he, quote-unquote, went over to the other side, was the um, leader of the um, Dutch Reformed Church. 
in South Africa, which provided the biblical justification for apartheid, and many people, including Desmond Tutu and others, uh, who were his colleagues and um, and contemporaries in the struggle against apartheid, believed that absolutely Bayers was on his way to becoming the prime minister of South Africa. So you're talking about an individual in an immense sort of position of, of, of power at, at the time that he, um, having increasingly uh, struggled with his conscience, seeing what was going on around him, um, decided that he simply could no longer uh, be... Um, in, in good faith, uh, justify um, as a Christian and as a human being the, 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 the suffering that he saw that was a result of the apartheid system. And so one day after the Sharpeville massacres that um, took place um, in, 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 in the 60s where protesters were protesting against the uh, pass laws uh, were dispersed by the police and shot in the back and killed, uh, you know, not long after that, Bayer's uh, basically, well, what he did is that he stood up in his pulpit one Sunday morning and um, preaching to the most powerful whites in South Africa, but preached a sermon called Obedience to God, in which he uh, basically renounced his ministry and his position of power in in. in, in in that society, and it was a move of, at the time, astonishing um, courage, saying, Bears no day Baba Wetu, which means Bears no day, our father, our father, you know, and it sort of chokes me up just to recall that, and it was an immense honor to be able to make that film, because he had turned everyone down. Oh. Uh, which is the interesting story, he had refused to let anyone make a film about his life, uh, because he did not want to be seen in any way as advancing his his own personal kind of agenda or, or so forth, um, and that was the kind of guy he was. But he agreed to let me make the film because of his friendship with my father, and 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 that's because my dad at the time, as I mentioned, had was. Um, you know, himself was a vigorous um, and very active um, um, leader of, of faith-based opposition to apartheid. And when he was at the World Council of Churches, you know, made a, a rather famous visit to, to South Africa and, and held the first ever conference of church leaders against apartheid. And Bayers was one of the people who attended that conference. So my dad and Bayers went way back. And um, I remember meeting with Bears, and he, um, you know, this was in 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 the eighties when we were still fighting the fight. Mm -hmm. And he agreed to let me make this film, and it was really the first major documentary I had ever made. But you know, maybe Bears knew something that I didn't, because um, we just went on to make this film that was a classic little portrait of this man and. Uh, his struggle, and it had wonderful supporting interviews in it with Tutu and, and others. And um, and it went on, I think you're being very and humble. And it went on to get an Oscar nomination, yep. which absolutely floored us, you know, <laughs> because I was, 
you know, it was the first major film I'd ever made, and and um, you know, I've made other movies, but this was my first sort of foray into the world of making, you know, serious documentary films. And lo and behold, you know, we had we had submitted the film, not really knowing or expecting much about the process, and hadn't even thought about it much. And lo and behold, on the day that the nominations were announced. Um, I got a call from Jack Garner, who at the time was the chief um, film critic for, for the Gannett News Service. And I just picked up the phone, and he said, Bob? And I said, yeah. He said, it's Jack. I said, hi, Jack. How you doing? He says, well, are you sitting down? <laughs> I said, no, but I will. <laughs> and he said, well, congratulations. You know, you just, I'm in New York with my buddies at USA Today, and you've just been nominated for an Oscar, and, you know. Well, it was fabulous news, not for us, but I mean, of course, it was very exciting, but it it was a nice way to kind of, you know, get started, if you will, in the... in this very challenging world of making making documents, mm-hmm. so. see see what happens when you follow your passion. It, you have to have a lot of perseverance to do the kind of work that we do. Sure, and and that actually uh, it's a good segue to my uh, my last question. You know, sure. I, I know that Worldwide Documentaries is a nonprofit yes. uh, company, and so. Um, how can our listeners help, and what can they do to uh, really share your your work with others? I, I don't know where uh, uh, some of the older films like Cry of Reason and A Closer Walk, uh, how they're distributed. Um, but uh, I know that uh, Not My Life is is uh, will be making the, the uh, cinema circuit. Uh, pretty soon, but what can our listeners do to help you continue to spread uh, uh, these messages of uh, of humanity and, and social raise social awareness on uh, and some of the social issues you you're dealing with? Uh, I mean, they can get in touch with us. You know, I remember when I interviewed Kofi Annan for the film we made about the AIDS epidemic. Kofi saying, "Well, we can all do something according to who we are." You know, we can always use financial support. The money goes directly back into um, you know, because we are a nonprofit, obviously, directly back into the work itself. And in this case, it's supporting, um, you know, a, a very sophisticated free film distribution campaign that really makes it easy for NGOs and others to use the film because we're basically going to try to give it away. Um, we're going to have to underwrite that process. So certainly supporting us financially is, is one thing. And then if you go to the website, again, either the Worldwide Documentaries website or, or the NotMyLife.org website, um, you know, there's a whole list of, 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 of things that, that, or references that, 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 that you know, basically will, will, will help anyone. Um, and, and, and hopefully World Footprints will too. And um, Bob, uh, thank you so much for leaving Positive Footprints and for taking the time with us today on uh, World Footprints Radio. Bob Bilheimer is the founder of Worldwide Documentaries. Thank you, my dear. Thank you so much, honey. I really enjoyed this. Thank you for sharing this time with us today. We always look forward to seeing you here and to connecting with you on our multiple platforms and social networks in real time throughout the week. You can find links to everything and sign up for our newsletter and travel deal alerts at worldfootprints.com. 
We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we look forward to welcoming you back to World Footprints broadcast. And until then, we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time. Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada. Banff National Park. Natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio because they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps. There are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio is a presentation of Travel and On Media Productions, LLC. All rights reserved.